I apologize for the uh, difficulties this morning getting all the paperwork together. Mercy Hill waged an unsuccessful battle with the hole punch uh, this week that uh, <coughs> slowed us down this morning. But, uh, but what you should have is two pages, our statement of faith, that's going towards the front of your notebook. I'm thinking right after the table of contents page. All right? Um, and those, those are going to be referenced throughout every talk almost. All right? So that's just up front in the front matter. And then you should also have four pages for today's notes, <coughs> which is where we're going to spend most of our time. I did want to go back um, and, and just consider really briefly, if you were here last week, we talked about death and the intermediate state. And for some, I think that was the first time that we had really thought about that intermediate state, that time between when we die and when Christ returns, and what will that be like. And so I thought just to read what our statement of faith has to say about that so that we could be just refreshed, reminded about it. So if you're at the front of your notebook, it's on the first page of the statement of faith. And by the way, if you look at that statement of faith, this is section 13 of our statement of faith. Uh, in other words, and that's the last one. There are 13 sections. This is just one of them. It's, it's really quite extensive. You can find it on the website if you want to see the rest. But this part is all about the last thing, the, the end times. All right? So let me just read this, death and the intermediate state. Death entered God's good creation as a result of Adam's sin. And now all people are subject to God's curse of death. Yet believers have no need to fear because Christ has conquered death and delivered us from its dominion. Although our bodies return to dust for a time, death for the Christian has become a doorway to paradise, where our souls immediately enter immediately into God's presence to behold and enjoy our Savior and to rest from our labors. I love to read that, that death itself has become, what a phrase, a doorway to paradise. I'll tell you, as I've been preparing this for the last weeks and even months, it's affecting how I think. It is affecting how I feel when death is considered. Wow. Because everybody knows death is scary. I mean, it just is. But the fact that believers have no need to fear and that it becomes a doorway to paradise, praise God. In company with all the spirits of the righteous made perfect, we will await the redemption of our bodies and our full and final salvation. The souls of the unredeemed, however, are cast immediately into Hades to experience torment as they await final judgment for their sins. That, that is, if you weren't here last week, that is the summary of what we, we went over. I should have referenced it last week, but I just hadn't thought to. So, yes. Amen. Amen. Yes, that's right. Um, I usually like to highlight a book as we get started. Um, at the front, in the front matter of your binder, you've got a list of recommended resources. Today, I just want to highlight this one called The Triumph of the Lamb. Uh, <clears throat> highlighting it for two reasons. One, a lot of what I'm going to talk about today came out of this book, and so could, could recommend it just for further reading on what we're discussing today. 
But second, what this book really is is a commentary on the book of Revelation. And today as a church, we're going to start the book of Revelation. And so if you would like to study along at home, uh, you could certainly pick up one of these. We've got several copies in the Resource Center. Uh, recommended highly. All right. So what are we talking about today? So today we're going to, to talk about how to read your Bible when it's talking about the future. I think most of us have a pretty good intuitive feel about how to read our Bible in the sense that we read it like a book. And so, okay, yep, I going to read the Bible like a book. I know how to read other books. I'll read the Bible. Um, but reading the Bible when it talks about the future particularly is probably very different from most of the books that you read every day. And so putting some thought into that I think is going to serve you for the long haul. My hope is not simply to teach on the end times, like delight to do this it's exciting to get to share these things together but i also want to equip you so that in five years and ten years and twenty years you can be understanding god's word as you read through and say oh yeah right here and right here and this is probably working this way all right so that's where we're going this morning and so i'm in the notes now on page one of how to read the bible when it talks about the future number one the inspired book <clears throat> the inspired book so this is we're just going to start with basically what is the bible um and then we'll get to the bible talking about the future so the bible was written by human beings and those human beings were as unique as you are they had their own personality their own way of thinking and formulating thought they came from a particular cultural background spoke a particular language. Um, and so we have a, a short list. I just randomly limited it to four. We could have done a lot more than this. But Isaiah, he wrote the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah verse, you know, chapter 30, verse 8, it says, And now go, God is speaking to him, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book. So God gives Isaiah very specific instructions. Hey, buddy, write this stuff down. It's not just for you. And so Isaiah writes down what he's been given. And then Daniel, we just finished the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, 1 says he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So God sent the dream to Daniel. Think about this for a minute. God sent the dream to Daniel. Let's say it was the dream of that great big image, right? The head of gold and the... The, the, the chest of silver and the bronze, right? Okay, so, so he sees that. That's from God. And then Daniel has to write it down, which was Daniel's formulation and thinking, right? He is thinking through how to do that. Now, our next point is going to be that God's using Daniel's thoughts perfectly. But I just don't want to skip over the fact that they are also Daniel's thoughts as a human being trying to describe what he just saw. Um, then Luke, Luke just, he's really almost kind of casual in Luke 1, verse 3. It seemed good to me. <laughs> it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. It just kind of felt like a good idea. So I'll write a gospel today. You know? <laughs> all right. 
Uh, and then John, uh, in the book of Revelation, is told, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. All right, so the first point about the Bible is that it is written by human beings that are unique, that have every bit of humanity that we have. Um, but then the second point, God worked through those human beings to communicate his word perfectly and without error. So, so he used fallen humans, imperfect humans, to craft his perfect word, his without error word. This point is the one that often gets emphasized in evangelical churches and should be emphasized that God's word is perfect and it is inspired and it is authoritative and they are the very words of God. Yes and amen. I want to hold both of these points together as we talk and recognize that it is both a human work and a divine work. And that takes nothing away from the divine workiness of it. It's still perfect. It's still authoritative. And the book of Daniel still sounds like Daniel. And the letters of Paul still sound like Paul. It's his personality coming through in this perfect way. So if you were to pick out the two most important verses in all of the Bible to know and understand about the Bible, this is them right here. So two verses in the Bible about the Bible. The two verses that give us kind of the m most clear work for our theology of Scripture. The first is Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is a look at all of biblical history. And the author of Hebrews says, for a long time, God spoke through prophets. Right? Long ago, in many times and in many ways. He spoke through Moses in a different way than he spoke through David. He spoke through Isaiah differently than he spoke through Jeremiah. Right? So long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now he's spoken to us by his son. This is why Christians can say, there will be nothing else added to our Bibles until Christ returns. Because what could be said better than what the Son has said? He is the ultimate. We have the prophets, and then, as the ultimate revelation of God, we have the Son and his coming to earth and the explanation, apostolic explanation, around that. That's our Bible right there. Okay? Now, what's interesting is the phrase, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So here's Daniel writing down the book of Daniel. And he gives it to the priests to read to the people. And they read a book written by Daniel. And as they read, who speaks? God. God speaks. Wow. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It wasn't mere prophets. It wasn't just Daniel. It wasn't just David. It wasn't just Jeremiah. It's God himself speaking through these human instruments that wrote his word. And then probably the most famous passage about this is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a great one for memorization. All scripture is 
breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So all scripture is breathed out by God. This is a remarkable thing. So here is, here is Paul in a prison cell writing to Timothy. And he's, he's hunched over and he's thinking through what to say next. And he's, he's writing at the end of 2 Timothy, don't forget my cloak. Don't forget the parchments. Don't forget to this. Come to me quickly, Timothy. And as, as Paul is writing, God is breathing that out. It is, it is this marvelous work of God where he breathes through without uh, dissolving the personality of the person writing and without turning them into a robot. He works through them. Their personality comes out, and it is fully the speech of God. That's our Bible. How wonderful. All right, next point there, which we all know, but it is a remarkable thing. God's method of communication with his people is through a book. This is why in the history of the world, where Christianity goes, schools follow. 100%. This is why literature followed and follows Christianity across the globe. Because Christians understand if we're going to have the next generation follow God, they better know how to read because that's how he speaks. He speaks through a book. That's why translation projects to get the word into all different tongues and languages throughout the world are so vital so that people can hear the voice of God in their mother tongue. So, a couple points underneath that. God believes that he can communicate true things about himself to us through a book. Of course he believes that. Uh, that is, in fact, the truth. He can communicate true things about us. There's all kinds of movements out there that most of us are unaware of, praise God, that are seeking to undermine the authority of God's word that would say things like, how in the world could, could we learn true things about a, a God who's just so incomprehensible? And we say, well, because God seemed to think he could do that. That's how. He's, he's God, and he thinks he can communicate truly. Ours is not to question whether or not God can communicate truly. Ours is to try to understand and apply and believe and obey what he says. So next one then, if God gave us a book, God expects us to read and to study and to meditate on the law, on the law of the Lord day and night. Uh, there are beautiful sections of Scripture. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is a chapter on loving the book and being a student of the book. Psalm chapter 19 is also another one that just talks about the, the goal to study. And so that's what we get to do this morning is study the book. So as we do that, the next two phrases go together. We should treat the book as being the very words of God because it is. And we should treat the book as a book because it is. And it is not a contradiction to say this. In other words, we will treat the book as a piece of literature because God wrote for us a piece of literature. 
and we're going to seek to use our minds to understand the literature, just like reading Shakespeare or, or some other piece of literature. We're going we're to use our minds to understand the book. We're going to use the rules of reading <laughs> to understand what God is trying to say. And so we can say it is, a, it is an instrument that is well fit to our humanity. We can understand how to read books. But then we're called to do that and to engage our minds in the reading process so that we could hear what God is trying to communicate. The last point there, we should read the Bible as both inspired and as literature because it is inspired literature. Make sense? All right. Good. All right. So now about the book. Every text has a meaning. Right. Every text has a meaning. How do you know? Well, who gets to decide the meaning, the meaning of a text? I will tell you. Who gets to decide the meaning of a text? The person who wrote it. That's how this works. Right? The author of a book is the one who defines what is being said. Now, you can get that book and misread and misinterpret and say, well, you know, I think it means this. But the author is the one that gets to say what it means. This is how human communication works, right? And so the meaning of the text is that which the author intended to communicate. This is true for our Bibles. So um, the meaning of Daniel chapter 7 is what was Daniel trying to communicate in Daniel chapter 7. That's what we're after as we try to discern, try to understand the book. We're trying to figure out what was Daniel trying to say. What did he mean in this? Next point, the meaning of a text is independent of our response to it or our feelings about it, all right? So, you know, I don't like that it says this. Okay. I, I understand a lot of people have that. I would say we all have that at times for different corners of our Bible as our unredeemed sinful man still uh, doesn't understand or fights against what God would have to say. But our response to the word doesn't change the word. All right. Now, uh, I'm on page two. Uh, the text has a primary audience. So, uh, so today, we're going to start the book of Revelation, which begins a couple, couple verses down, but says, John, to the seven churches who are in Asia. All right. Well, John was writing a letter to seven churches in Asia. And so he was trying to communicate a meaning to them, not to you. To them. So if we're going to understand the meaning of the text, there is a place we have to do of kind of putting ourselves in their shoes. Saying, okay, if I was living in Asia at the time, how would this sound to me? That's part of understanding what was John trying to say to them. Next one is really big. The second one on page two. The meaning which the author intended to communicate is also the meaning which the author is intending to communicate. All right? So we recognize that there are two authors operating at two different levels. There's the human author saying certain things, and there's the divine author who's breathing through that person, and their, their meanings are the same, all right? So, so when we find the meaning that uh, 
that John was trying to communicate to Revelation to the, to the seven churches, we found the meaning that God is trying to communicate. Now, I'm going to put a small asterisk next to this and just to say, also God tends to play at several levels at once. Okay? So he's playing 3D chess. John's playing checkers. Uh, so when you find John's meaning, you absolutely have found God's meaning. But I do think sometimes God is just, well, obviously, God is just aware of more things than John is at the time. And so we are allowed to kind of say, hmm, you know, I think when, for example, some Old Testament prophecy, when, when Malachi wrote this, I think he was thinking this, but now it's clear that the Spirit was also thinking this, all right? So God's, God's meaning can be more inclusive, but it's never different than what the human author was thinking. Okay. Um, and then just as we go through our Bibles, interpret the unclear sections in light of the clear sections. This is a good rule for interpretation. Let's not build doctrines on, on the passages that are really hard to understand. And there are easier and harder ones to understand, right? Um, and so, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? To which I say, that's a great question. Why are they? What is that? I know nothing of the baptism for the dead in any other passage of Scripture. I don't really know what this means. So if we're going to seek to understand this passage, let's kind of put it on the top of the pyramid where we gather God's word about salvation and death and newness of life, and we build our doctrines off of those things which we can see throughout Scripture, and then we set this on top and say, how does this flow from all of that? Rather than inverting the pyramid and saying, oh, okay, we're going to create a whole new system of salvation or something like that, based on a text that's confusing, and it's the only one that addresses that. Okay? All right. So that's talking about meaning. Uh, next bigger bullet is every text has a context. So there's two contexts that you should be thinking about when you read your Bible. And one is the uh, lit, uh, situational context. So knowing something of the situation of the people who are being written to. Here's how this works for me as a pastor, right? Like, I, I, we just finished the book of Daniel. And I'm aware that Daniel is specifically writing to exiles to encourage them. And they were exiles in the Babylonian time period. And so, okay, so then why is Daniel writing? Well, it's, it's for encouragement. It's for hope. It's here's what's coming. So, so live faithful to God today. And then knowing that, I can say, all right, well, then that, there's, there's the purpose of the text. We could hear that. We, we, could, we could live faithful today based on what, what we know is coming. So it, could, it, it creates the bridge to us in a certain way. If you miss that bridge and you just think Daniel's writing to you, whew, it gets crazy. Because <laughs> uh, he didn't. He doesn't know you. He didn't know you. Uh, God was writing to you. God was writing to you, but he expects you to do the work of reading a book, which is to understand the original audience, 
and and then r relate yourself to to it that way. All right, so that's the the, the historic context. The second is the literary context. Um, you know, the, the, the each sentence or phrase is part of the whole work of literature. Um, so we don't just lift sentences out and try to understand them on their own. You know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Uh, that is a one verse in the middle of a fantastic judgment passage in Old Testament scripture. And why you would lift that one out and not all the judgment before and after and apply that directly to your life. Um, we, we, you got to know the context, literate, the literary context to say, all right, because of Christ, it is true. God does have a future and a hope for you. That's not wrong. But boy, if we skipped a lot, if we just kind of start pulling things out of Scripture and you can end up in really misinterpreted places. All right, last one under point two is every text has a genre. We've been talking about this if you've been here with us in Daniel, but just uh, genre is a type of writing, a type of literature. Right? Um, and so, you know, the ones we've used before would be reading a newspaper is different than reading a love poem, is different than reading a handwritten letter from one person to another. There are sort of unwritten rules. There are expectations built into different genres. If somebody says, here, read this love poem, I immediately kind of feel, ooh, I don't really want to, because uh, I know something of poetry, and I know I'm going to be confused as I read it. You know, If they say, read this news report from the Ukraine, I have a whole different, okay, I can probably do that accurately. Like I, I expect certain ways of communicating to me. So those are just different genres. And I think what Christians have often done is to say, well, there's like newspaper genre, and there's poetry genre, and then there's Bible genre. And that is just so wrong. Uh, it's overly simplified. The Bible is 66 books written by 40 different people over 2,000 years. It is a variety of different genres. And so when you jump in and you start to read Isaiah, it's going to be different than Genesis. And so just identifying what kind of writing am I reading right now? And particularly, this starts to get us towards the topic of the day. How do we read the Bible when it talks about the future? Well, there's specific genres employed in talking about the future that we want to understand. Where am I? Okay, I think, I think that covers that. Let's get to number three, biblical prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Mm, good, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. Yes. Isn't it great? I mean, you think about it. Jess was just saying how because there's different genres, it appeals to different kinds of people. And so, you know, maybe you love a good adventure story. And, boy, some of those historic narratives in the Old Testament of Samson pulling down the 
temple on top of himself and slaying God's enemies. Those are just cool and exciting. And maybe you love poetry. And as you approach Psalm 23, it just leads you to tears and to worship as you consider the good shepherd. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, and then Proverbs. I think Proverbs, like, they resonate with young people. Like, hey, this is how to live successfully in this world. Okay, thanks. Let me do that then. You know? So you're absolutely right. The different genres, um, I think, help connect a very diverse humanity to God's word. Um, the point here is just let's make sure we know where we, 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 think, we think it through. Um, so here's another example, just a genre example. Um, if you're reading the Proverbs, Proverbs is a wisdom literature kind of genre where it tells you, here's how the world works. If you live this way, things are going to go good for you. If you don't, they're not going to go good for you. All right? It's, it's, it's proverbial. In other words, Proverbs are not the same as maybe Paul saying, here's a promise from Jesus. You know, or in Revelations when Jesus says, surely I am coming back. Listen, if Jesus says he's coming back, that's a promise. We can take it to the bank. We can hold on to that for all time. But a proverb is not the same thing, and it's not meant to be the same thing. If we turn the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, into promises, we've gone too far with them. They were never intended to be promises. You know the most famous one that the church kind of toys with with this? Go ahead. Mm, yeah, and lean not on your own understanding. Yeah, yeah. And that's good. Like, let's trust in the Lord with all our heart. Let's not lean on your own understanding. The end result of that doesn't mean that everything's going to always be awesome in your life, right? The other one that I've heard so often, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. I, I want to just break it to you early because it's going to be broken to you at some point. That's not a promise from God. That is how the world tends to work. You raise up your kids to follow Christ, they will often follow Christ. It's, pro, it's a proverb. It's not a promise from God that, because if it were, have you, have you met the person who labors under that was a promise? And the only reason my kid isn't walking with Jesus is I must have failed to adequately do this. So if, if you misunderstand, it can become just an intolerable burden on people. Um, so, okay, great. Uh, biblical prophecy. So we've got two, two points left. Um, biblical prophecy, and then apocalyptic literature, all right? So biblical prophecy, I'm just going to highlight some typical things about biblical prophecy that we can talk about. Many of these have been highlighted during sermons throughout the book of Daniel, but I wanted to kind of pull it all together in one place where you have all the notes in one place rather than just scattered throughout different sermons in the book of Daniel, okay? So one that we talked about, I, I used the phrase in one of the sermons, prophetic ripples, all right? The more um, uh, precise phrase that theologians use is types and antitypes. So the way that prophecy often works in the scripture is you will see um, types of things in advance of the antitypes. So let me, let me teach by means of an example. Here are some types of Christ in the Old Testament. Joshua 
as a leader of God's people, conquering the enemy, is a type of Jesus who will lead his people into the promised land. Can you see that? We learn something of Jesus through Old Testament Joshua. Moses, as the prophet, coming down from the mountain to speak the word of God to God's people, is a type of Jesus, the great prophet, who's, the, as the son of God, speaks the final word for God. Melchizedek, as priest, is a type of Christ who came as the final and great high priest. Daniel, as faithful witness in the midst of persecution, is a type of Christ. Noah, as a savior from wrath. Joseph, who saved his brothers by being sold by his brothers for silver at that. Adam, as the head of mankind, is a type of Christ who comes as the head of a new mankind. You see these? I, I love talking about this stuff. It's exciting. We, Jesus is on every page of our Bible. You know? So those are all called types. Well, what's the antitype? Jesus. The antitype is the one that all the types are pointing to. Okay? So we finally get Jesus fully displayed in the New Testament. And then we go, oh, so Joshua, whose name means God will save, right? Something like that. He's a type of Jesus. And Moses, oh, okay. You tend to see it after the fact. But this is God preparing his people in advance for what the true Messiah will be like. So, in other words, events that are prophesied for the near future may be typical events of events that will also happen in the distant future. All right? So we've, we've encountered this a few times with Daniel. Um, if you were here, you're familiar now with this evil leader, the ancient Near East called Antiochus Epiphanes. So he was clearly the one being talked about in a couple different passages in Daniel. But it also seems very, very likely that it wasn't just him, but also the ripples of him that were being talked about. This kind of antichrist spirit at work, these antichrists that would pop up from that time on through the rest of history and probably culminating in the antichrist at the end of time. And that, that's, that's hard, I think. It's hard to in interpret that. That's where we, have, we, we need to approach prophecy with, with humility as we try to understand these things. All right, so the first thing was these types. The next on page three is prophetic foreshortening. We talked about this just last week with the idea of driving across the plains of the U.S. and seeing some mountains out in the distance. And from a great distance away, you could accurately describe what you're seeing. And you could describe this many peaked mountain way off in the distance with, you know, snow on this peak and, you know, the color of the rock and whatever, where the trees are. But as you get to it, you realize, you know, eight hours later when you finally get to the foot of the mountain, oh, wow, this is a mountain range. And there were actually, from my perspective before, three mountains in a row that look to me like one mountain. But as I get to them, I realize these are three mountains in a row, and there's actually distance in between all three of these mountains. 
this happens frequently in prophecy uh, in the Old and the New Testament, where the time period between events is shortened from the prophet's perspective. That's why it's called prophetic foreshortening. That time period uh, can almost evaporate. So, for example, Malachi chapter 4. Uh, I've got the passage in there for you, and I've got two things happening. Some things are underlined, and some things are italicized. So just, let's just listen while, while I read this. <clears throat> Here's Malachi predicting the coming of, of Jesus. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that I will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. All right. What's Malachi talking about? He sees this in the future. Essentially, Jesus is coming. He calls it the day of the Lord. There's the mountain. The day of the Lord is coming. Here's what's going to happen. It's going to be really great. The son of righteousness is going to re reign, and, and you're going to go out leaping for joy, and the enemies of God are going to be cast down. And before all that happens, Elijah's coming. All right. You know that reference to Elijah? Who, who was that in reference to? John the Baptist. It was. Jesus makes it really clear in the New Testament. That was in reference to John the Baptist, who came right before Jesus came. But what's confusing is that Jesus didn't do all this when he came. Did he? He did not come in judgment. So the italicized things are my attempt to say, hey, these things happened in the first coming of Christ. The Son of Righteousness rising with healing in its wings. Go out leaping like calves from the stall. Here, redemption was purchased in the first coming of Christ. And that was signified by Elijah the prophet coming before he came. But then the underlying stuff seems to me to point to the second coming of Christ. And Malachi called the day of the Lord both of those things and kind of saw them together. And then as we get into the New Testament, we realize, oh, those mountains are kind of far apart. <laughs> he was actually talking about two different things. What he said was true, and what he said was exactly what God wanted his people to know. But, some, but time has a way of unfolding things where we go, oh. Okay, last point is apocalyptic literature. Um, so apocalyptic literature is another genre in our Bibles, but you could think of it as a kind of subcategory of prophecy. Okay? It's not equal to prophecy, but some prophecy is apocalyptic. So um, what is apocalyptic literature for? It is for preparation, not for prediction. Now it often looks ahead to help us have a sense of what's coming. But the purpose is not so much to tell us precisely the order of events, the time periods, the names of everybody that's going to be involved. 
It gives us what we need so that we may be prepared to stand on that day and to trust the Lord on that day. That's the purpose of it. So um, John the Baptist was confused by Christ's coming. So he was the one who said to everybody, he was the first one that got it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he gets thrown in jail and he's like sending his disciples back to Jesus. Are you really him? And why would John wonder? Because he had read Malachi. That's why John was wondering. Why aren't you slaying the Romans, Jesus? Did I have it wrong? Are you not that guy? And Jesus responded, I am that guy. Um, Trust me. Trust me. Um, So I, I actually take great encouragement from John the Baptist. Um, I hope it produces a kind of humility in preaching that I, I don't know. I don't know. I certainly don't know it better than John the Baptist. Heavens, greatest ever born of women, as Jesus said. So if he was a little confused looking forward to the first coming, I'm going to be a little confused looking forward to the second coming. We should still be students. We should still try to understand. Let's get to the meaning of the text and all of that. But where we see some ambiguity, let's acknowledge it freely and then trust the Lord that he left that there so that we have to look to him and trust him. You know, Another way to think about it is just, you know, he could have, like, God could have given us a history book in advance. How cool is that? How cool would that be? Like, some of you are in history class right now, right? And you could, like, open the book and go back and read about World War II. Because you can look back 60 years ago. Imagine you could just look forward like that, 60 years. He could have done that. He didn't do that. And he didn't do that, not because he couldn't, but because he knew what was best for us. So that he could prepare us for what's coming, while still encouraging us to trust him each day, and not trust our perfect knowledge of the future. Um, All right. Uh, last thing about uh, apocalyptic literature is just uh, symbols and images. Um, all throughout Apocalypse, that's kind of the defining thing is the symbols used. Um, and these images, they're, they're, they're given to us to explain to us what things are like, not what things look like. So, you know, the, the, the beasts of Daniel, as we talked about, those, those showed us the the true character of those kingdoms of men who came and devoured and were evil. It's not that we were expecting physical beasts to rise up out of the sea. All right? Um, Down at the end of page three, um, why does God speak in pictures? Here's just some thoughts for that. Pictures are used to counter the propaganda we face living in this world in this present age. It says, this, not that, is real. This is what's really happening. You, people here on earth, you see churches that forsake the scriptures and forget the gospel. God says, I see a false prophet speaking lying words to deceive my people. Every day we hear the world's whispers. We see its beauty. We feel its touch. We taste its delicacies. The world bombards us with images through all of our senses, and apocalypse punches back. 
says, no, this is what's real. Don't, I mean, like the language and revelation of the harlot seeking to woo the church away from Christ. That is evocative, powerful language, and it's bracing for us. <gasps> what? That's what's happening? Oh, God, help me to live pure. Oh, God, help me to stay near to you, lest I be caught up in what you see as adultery against you. All right, great. Last page. Um, I grabbed these and adapted them a little bit from one of the books that I've been studying. Just give some symbolic numbers and, and colors that are often used in Apocalypse that we're, we have encountered in Daniel. We're going to encounter more in the book of Revelation. I will say I'm, I, I didn't include anything here that I wasn't confident in, so this is adapted from that book. I changed some things around. Um, but that doesn't mean it's inspired either. We have to recognize when you're trying to interpret a symbol that God did not give us the answer to. Right? Again, I don't get the secret pastor Bible that tells me all these things. Okay? So what we get to do is we get to see, like from Daniel, how were things fulfilled? That gives us a feel for how this stuff works. Um, and then we just pray and seek the Lord and listen to others and, and, and try to understand what these things symbolize. So, um, so small numbers. Uh, well, I, I don't know that I need to go through all these. Maybe a few that are going to be helpful for us in the book of Revelation. Seven, I think, is the easiest one, right? The number of completion. I, put, I, I actually added the background column there um, just to kind of give, well, how, why do we think seven is the number of completion? Well, the days of creation. Like, God wove that into our time. He set up the week. So we, we kind of understand that just intuitively. All cultures, all people at all times get it. So, okay, I think that's pretty solid, right? Well, throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to see that seven refers to completion or fullness. Um, and then six makes sense to me, I believe this is right, as not full and not complete, right? So it's like it's the uh, often the, the enemy's attempt to look complete, but failing in that attempt. Yeah? Um, so, for example, the number of the beast as 666 is a number of perfectly imperfect, fully unfull, totally incomplete. All right. Um, the number 12, I think, is really solid basis as well. It speaks to the fullness of God's people, all of God's people. And we see that twice in the history of the Bible with uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Jacob's sons, he had 12 sons. So that's all of God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, in, at least in the Old Testament sense. And then when Jesus came, he could have picked as many disciples as he wanted, and he picked 12 disciples. And so we see these two 12 used historically. We get to Apocalypse, and when, when the number 12 begins to be used, we say, hmm, hmm, I think this is referring to God's people, not just 12 of God's people. Um, and then the, the last thing for, for numbers would just be multiples. Um, we're going to find some things in Revelation, like the, the number 144,000. Um, 
I, yeah, so 144 is 12 times 12. And so, okay, this is like all, all, all of God's people. We'll, get, we'll, we'll talk more when we get there. Uh, Revelation uses a lot of colors, um, white, red, black, purple, green, gold, which um, I think are pretty universal. I mean, gold sure is. How is gold not a picture of wealth and beauty and royalty? Like, in what culture is it not that? Because <laughs> I'd like to go get all their gold. If they don't value it, I'll take it. You know, it's universally understood. Um, red as a symbol for blood or violence. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. You know, that's, uh, that's, we, all, we all understand that. So, okay, there we go. Got a few minutes for questions, but hopefully that last page helps a little bit, because I've just been unpacking those as we go through the sermons, and I thought to kind of put them all here, then we could reference them as we go through Revelation together. So, Paul. Um, I certainly mean primarily, and in terms of if we use the, depends on how we use the term people, we're talking about God's people, I mean exclusively. God only communicates to all of his people through his word. That is the only normative word from God for all of us. I don't mean that God can't call you to something, that he can't speak to you in a particular way. We are a, a church that believes in the ongoing gifts of the Spirit, but but those gifts of the Spirit, like the prophetic prophecy that we experience in here. Uh, boy, I could go off. Uh, this could be a big topic. Um, so we have a prophecy mic, and people will come up and they'll share a word of exhortation. You know what we don't do with those prophecies? Write them down. Publish them for all the church. Declare that these are words from God for all people at all times. These things have happened in the history of the church over and over and over again. And that's how cults get started. Um, so the only normative word for God's people is in a book. But yes, the Holy Spirit still prompts us. And I would say, but even those promptings don't attend with the same authority as the written word. That's the authority for believers. 